thousands of years ago, Yemen wasn't where it was today. It was it was rich. The Romans called it Arabia Felix, Happy Arabia. Can you give us a very quick and dirty sort of history of why Yemen is in fact a very poor part of, of the Arabian Peninsula? Do you remember back in the 1980s, many, and the U.S. was supporting it, Saudi Arabia was supporting, many fighters went off to Afghanistan to take part in what was called then a, a jihad against the Soviet troops in Afghanistan. I don't imagine that Yemen is a country that comes up on most people's radar, but it probably should for a variety of reasons. Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. And you're listening to Canadian Intelligence, eh? The podcast about national security and public safety. When I worked in signals intelligence many, many years ago, I was a Middle East analyst. I was an Arabic linguist. And I was looking at what was happening in various parts of that part of the world. And one of the countries that used to come up an awful lot was Yemen. Now, I'm old enough to remember when there were two Yemens, a South Yemen and a North Yemen. And I distinctly recall covering the Yemeni civil war, which led to, I believe it was 1994, which led to the actual coalition into, into the modern state of Yemen. Yemen is, is, is a very poor country, but it's also one that has been risen a lot in recent years because of terrorism. So Islamist terrorism. I thought I would bring into the conversation today an individual whom I have uh, been listening and following for quite some time. I see him really as the, the go-to guy when it comes to Yemen. Uh, his name is Gregory Johnson. He's a former Fulbright Fellow in Yemen, which should tell you something. And he's joining me today all the way from North Carolina. So, Gregory, thanks for taking the time to be with me. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Let's go back to first principles then. So, you know, as I said, Yemen has been a country that I don't think most North Americans probably can't find on a map. But can you give us a very quick and dirty sort of history of why Yemen, as of twenty late 2020, almost 2021, is in fact a very poor part of, of the Arabian Peninsula and, and, and a very unstable part? So without going back to, you know, uh, thousands of years ago, <laughs> my listeners would appreciate just a, a bit of a recent history as to how Yemen got to be where it is today. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And and of course, thousands of years ago, Yemen wasn't where it was today. It was it was rich. The Romans called it Arabia Felix, Happy Arabia. But more, I remember that. I do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but more recently, Yemen has struggled largely because it hasn't been blessed with the sort of oil reserves that many of its neighbors like Saudi Arabia or um, some of the other Gulf countries, Oman, Kuwait, and so forth, um, the oil reserves that those countries had. So Yemen has some oil reserves, but not very many. You, Phil, you mentioned um, Yemen being unified, and that was a process that was largely driven um, both by the collapse of the Soviet Union in, in the late 1980s, but also by the discovery of oil. And much of the oil was discovered right on the borderland between what was then North Yemen and what was then South Yemen. And so the South was in a lot of trouble. It was basically a client state of the Soviets. Um, the Soviet Union collapsing meant that it was in a financial crush. Um, the North wanted this oil as well. Um, turns out that both sides overestimated how much oil there actually was. And they, they unified in 1990. And then, as you mentioned, 1994, there was the brief but very bloody civil war as the South said, you know what, unification isn't quite working out like we had like we'd anticipated, and the South tried to secede. That was that was put down, 
And really, since then, there have been a number of problems. So the South continues to try to secede up till today. Yemen, of course, as we know, in the aftermath of September 11th, um, has really been plagued by by terrorism. It's been an ongoing problem for uh, for Yemen. And then the the country itself, there's about 30 million people, um, which is more than most of the other countries on the Arabian Peninsula. And the government has been has been very, very weak over the past 20 years. And because the government has been so weak, because the government has been so poor, it hasn't really invested in the sort of infrastructure and education um, that other smaller populations in the Arabian Peninsula have been able to take advantage of. So Yemen is, very, as you mentioned, very, very poor in comparison to its neighbors. One thing that people may remember when they think of Yemen is the fact that an American Yemeni scholar called Anwar al-Awlaki, also called Awlaki, of course, was preaching from Yemen. He was killed in a drone strike, I believe, back in 2011. What is it about Islamist extremism, Gregory? Why did the Islamist extremists see Yemen as an area from which to operate? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So if you remember back in the 1980s, um, many, and the U.S. was supporting it, Saudi Arabia was supporting, many fighters went off to Afghanistan to take part in um, what was called then a, a jihad against the Soviet troops in Afghanistan. And a lot right. of... A lot of Middle Eastern countries send individuals there. Yemen was very, very active in, in sending um, sending fighters to Afghanistan in the in the 1980s. In fact, the president, um, some prominent tribal sheikhs, they were even recruiting some individuals to go. The difference with Yemen as compared to other states is that many states, states like Egypt, some of the North African countries, as well as Jordan and other countries in the Middle East, did not welcome these fighters back at the end of the 1980s and the beginning of the 1990s. Yemen did. And this gets back to what we talked about earlier in unification, which happened in 1990. So North Yemen, and it was led by a guy named President Ali Abdullah Saleh, he actually used these returning fighters, these Arab Afghans, if you will, he used them and instrumentalized and weaponized them against his rivals in the South. Because if you remember what we talked about just a few minutes ago, the South was a client state of the Soviets, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. the South were socialists, and so Ali Abdullah Saleh basically said to these guys, look, come back to Yemen, and you guys have been fighting communists in Afghanistan. Now come back to Yemen. We have communists here, and I'm going to to use you basically to undermine them. And so Yemen was uh, a welcoming place for many of these fighters in the early 1990s. And that's sort of the roots of the terrorist problem that Yemen had um, after September 11th. That's fascinating. I never thought of it in that way. I, I do remember the South being essentially a Marxist state and, and a very a very poor state as well. I did realize that Saleh had decided to, as you say, reposition or re reemploy, if you will, the Yemeni jihadis that fought the big, you know, bad Soviet bear in Afghanistan in Yemen. The other group, Gregory, that people may have heard of in recent years is a group called the Houthis. Now, just so a bit of a background, and you can probably fill in the gaps I don't have. You know, Yemen is, is pretty well split between Shia and Sunni in terms of this Muslim population. And the Houthis, are, in fact, are a Shia group. And they're, they're located, if memory serves me correct, mostly in North Yemen. And surprise, surprise, uh, Iran, which sees itself as the protector of the world's Shia Muslims in Lebanon and Iraq, etc., has taken an interest in, in the Houthis who have, in fact, gained some territorial power in Yemen in the last couple of years. And surprise, surprise, this has pissed off the Saudis because the Saudis basically believe the only good Shiite is a dead Shiite. Do you think that the, first of all, the Houthis do pose that 
great of a, of a danger to not just Yemen, but to the immediate partners, including Saudi, which shares a very long border with, with Yemen. And by extension, that Iranian involvement, arms shipments, military support to the Houthis, is, was great enough, posed enough of a danger to warrant the fact the Saudis and their Emirati partners until fairly recently have essentially supported the other side fighting against the Houthis. Is this just something the Saudis are making up? which they tend to do on occasion? Or was there really a justified reason why Saudi and the UAE uh, had incursions into Yemen over the past couple of years? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I, and I think some history is sort of instructive here. The, the Houthis, as you mentioned, Phil, um, quite correctly, are Shia, but they're Zaidi Shia. Um, and Zaidi Shia are slightly different than the type of what we often call 12er Shia, which is practiced in Iran, in Lebanon, right. in Iraq. And in Yemen, the Houthis being part of the Zaidi Shia, we talked about North Yemen and South Yemen. For a long time, what was North Yemen was actually what's known as a Zaidi Imame. That is that a individual, a Zaidi Shia, was both the religious and the political head of the state. And that that lasted in Yemen from way back in about 893 till up until 1962. And it was only after 1962 that there was a revolution, uh, the Republic of North Yemen was established, and then we sort of go into the early history that we talked about there. Why that's instructive for us and for the Houthis and what's happening um, currently is because the Houthis are part of that sort of Zaidi Shia um, religious class that led the state for such a long time. And as you can imagine, after the revolution in 1962, the that class, the class of Sayyids, their descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, mm-hmm. that class was they went from being basically on top of the social pyramid to being on bottom to being at the bottom of the pyramid. And they went from leading the state to being persecuted by the state after the 1960s. And that's some of the roots of the Houthi movement. And so what we saw in the early 2000s was the Houthis. The Zaidi Shia, they're sort of a revivalist group up in the north. They had been persecuted by the state for a generation from the 1960s all the way up to 2000. They started pushing back against the state. And in fact, even when Ali Abdullah Saleh was president um, in, in the early 2000s, there were six separate wars that were fought between the Houthis and the Yemeni state. And at that time, Ali Abdullah Saleh was saying things like, look, these are Shia um, Americans, Saudis, you guys have a problem with Iran and the Shia. I have a problem right here with the Houthis, with the Shia. They're supported by Iran. The problem was at that point, there was really no evidence to support what it is that Ali Abdullah Saleh was saying. There was some few, a few visits by Houthis to Iran and, and a little bit of outreach, but nothing in the way of support. And that really only changed in 2009. And this is uh, the sixth of six Houthi wars up in the north. And most of the previous five wars had all been between Ali Abdullah Saleh and the local Houthis. What changed in the sixth war is that Saudi Arabia got involved. Saudi Arabia got involved. The Houthis made some incursions over the border in retaliation against some Saudi um, shelling. And all of a sudden in Iran, and this is in this is in late 2009, this is about November of 2009, Iran starts looking at the Houthis slightly differently and starts to see them, hey, maybe this isn't just a local Yemeni insurgency. Maybe this is actually something that we can use to weaken, weaken the Saudis. That in, those initial sort of 
that light bulb going off in Tehran grew after the Arab Spring in 2011. And then in 2012, Ali Abdullah Saleh is forced to step down. The Houthis sort of have de facto control up in the north. And then in September 2014, they move in and they actually take control of the capital city of Sana'a. They put the transitional president in house arrest. And it's at that point that that Saudi Arabia starts to say, whoa, whoa, we're very concerned about something like Hezbollah South on our border, basically an Iranian proxy group on our border. There's not a lot of evidence to suggest at this time that Iran has any command and control. In fact, the evidence we have suggests that the Houthis weren't really listening to Iran at this point. But Saudi Arabia in March of 2015 starts this bombing campaign, and they start the bombing campaign in order to get the Houthis out of Sana'a as well and restore the president, but also to make sure that Iran doesn't get a foothold on their southern border. Unfortunately for the Saudis, this has turned into a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that the longer this war has gone on, and we're now in the sixth year, the closer the Houthis have grown to Iran. In fact, Iran just placed an ambassador in Houthi-controlled territory um, back in October, so just several weeks ago. In other words, be careful what you wish for in terms of when you start to, to talk about foreign incursions. Uh, it's interesting you you point out this, not only the fact that the, the you know the 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 uh, the Houthis are Zaidis or Fivers, and for, for my audience, they're Fivers, Seveners, and Twelvers. It gets complicated. The, the details don't matter. But you're also painted, Gregory, very much as an as an Iran versus Saudi Arabia thing, and we all know that the two states uh, hate each other to bits. The Saudis have been trying to convince the world that. Iran is the is the greatest threat since Beelzebub, uh, you know, descended from heaven. And uh, despite the fact that it's actually Saudi Wahhabist ideology that feeds most most of the terrorism thing, an interesting thing has happened recently. Of course, that's the outgoing Trump administration has mused. I'm not sure they've done it yet. Talked about listing the Houthis as a terrorist organization. Now, I have read uh, some analysis and some commentary in in open source by human rights organizations and aid organizations who say this would be a very, very bad thing, most first and foremost for the Yemeni people. The country is already quite poor, and this would simply make matters worse. Where do you stand on this issue of whether or not the U.S. administration should list the Houthis as a terrorist organization? Yeah, that's that's a great question, Phil. And, and like the human rights organizations, I, I think this would be a very bad idea, basically for three reasons. As you mentioned, it'd be very bad for the people of Yemen. I think it'd be very bad for peace talks in Yemen. And I think ultimately it would be bad for U.S. national security. And of course, the Trump administration is the the administration that's talking about doing this. So I think it'd be a mistake on three levels. Um, Just to unpack that briefly, for the Yemeni people... And I have a little bit of experience in this. Just to give you some background, I served on what's known as the Yemen Panel of Experts at the UN Security Council. And this is, I served for two years from 2016 to 2018 on this panel. And this panel is basically charged with overseeing the sanctions regime in Yemen. So there's a UN um, targeted sanctions regime in Yemen that basically is focused on five people, now four, because one of them has, has been killed, four individuals, three of them Houthis. And the sanctions regime is basically an asset freeze. So anything that these individuals have on, uh, have any assets they have in the, in the um, international banking system are frozen and a travel ban. And what we discovered 
as members of that panel was that sanctions in Yemen are hurting the wrong people. So they're not hurting the Houthi leadership because the Houthi leadership does not have international assets that can be frozen. And by and large, they they don't travel abroad. So even though the sanctions are targeted, what they're doing is they're hurting the normal Yemeni civilians up in the north who are struggling with a real that's basically in free fall. That's the currency of money. They're struggling because they don't have enough food. They don't have enough medicine. They're not able to get um, water, electricity shortages. All of these things the Houthi leadership is largely insulated from. It's the normal Yemeni civilians. And again, we're talking about a population of about uh, 30 million and about 60 to 70 percent of that 30 million lives under Houthi control. So what the Trump administration is arguing that Um, basically making the Houthis, designating them as a foreign terrorist organization, what it would do is it would criminalize any activity, any interaction with the Houthis as a group, which would mean that humanitarian organizations would not be allowed to work Mm -hmm. in areas under Houthi control unless they receive a waiver from the State Department. And those waivers can take a long time to come through. And the worry that myself and I think a number of other people who follow Yemen closely is, is that the situation for many of these people, millions of people in Yemen, and, and remember, Yemen is a place that the UN calls the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Many Mm -hmm. of these million people do not have the luxury of waiting a few months for medical um, attention, medical aid, or humanitarian aid and food to go in. If the U.S. does this, and if the waivers don't go through very quickly, and it's unlikely that they would go through quickly, then there could be thousands and thousands of preventable deaths, and these deaths would be on the conscience of the United States. And so that's just one of the reasons why why I oppose mm. the the designation. What a surprise! Sanctions that that are targeted against you know a certain group end up affecting another group. And as you said, it's you know Yemen is a humanitarian disaster, and it's not fair for anyone to impose sanctions on a population which is you know the most desperate of the most desperate. Gregory, but I want to talk a bit about you know what what you think is where Yemen's going. But I'm going to throw another question in for you that uh, I hope you can sort of weigh in a little bit. And I talked about uh, Anulat Awlaki. This, of course, was the Yemeni-American um, cleric who was killed in a drone strike. A very, very famous book was written. I think it was called Operation Troy a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. Uh, just out of curiosity, we've now had probably the Israelis assassinate an, an Iranian nuclear scientist with some kind of a, a bomb on his car in Tehran. Uh, is this okay for, like, you know, uh, the Americans, your, your your government, to launch drone strikes against a guy half a world away and, and take him out? I mean, I do know there was some criticism at the time because, A, he was a dual citizen, if memory serves me correct, and he obviously didn't get his day in court. And now he's basically, his atoms are scattered out in a, in a drone strike as part of the war on terrorism. What are your views on, on that kind of a tactic? Yeah, so... Drones, I think, are a very powerful tool that the United States and increasingly other actors, both states and non-states, have at their disposal. The challenge, of course, so a drone can hit the blue car driving down a dusty road in the desert, and it can make sure that it doesn't hit the green car behind it and the purple car ahead of it. But that's only a tool. I think the issue with drones is that so often you it's the intelligence that that 
underlies the the operation. So it doesn't matter if you hit the green car, if the individual in the green car is not who you think they are, or if they're not headed to the place that you think that they're headed. With someone like Anwar Araulaki, you're right, it was a very controversial controversial strike. One of the reasons, as you mentioned, is because Al-Aulaki was a was a United States citizen, and so there was a um, there was a worry that the U.S. was basically depriving him of any sort of due process. Um, what the United States ultimately held in that in that situation was: look, this is a someone who is this is someone who is not simply an ideological leader for al-Qaeda. That is, he's not just using words, but he's actually intimately involved in planning. And the big change, I think, for the United States, if you remember, on Christmas Day 2009, there's the so-called- The underwear plot. The underwear bomber, exactly mm-hmm. right, um, who was on a, on, a, on a plane to Detroit and thankfully was unable to ignite his explosives. But Anwar al-Awlaki was implicated in that plot. And once that happened and the U.S. said, look, this guy is actually taking action against the United States, then the U.S. was basically, it was hunting season on Anwar al-Awlaki. Mm-hmm. I think the problem mm-hmm. um, that the United States, basically the mistake that both the Bush administration and the Obama administration made is there was a period of time in which the U.S. had basically a monopoly on this technology and mm-hmm. the U.S. used that monopoly to create as much flexibility for itself as was possible in carrying out drone strikes in Yemen or Somalia or Iraq or Afghanistan or any of these other theaters around the world. And that set, I think, a very powerful precedent for other nation states um, who are coming after because the technology is eventually going to be um, you know, dispersed uh, to a number of different actors. And the U.S., by setting that precedent, now has a very difficult time walking mm-hmm. that back when other states mm-hmm. want to do something similar and carry out either what are, what are sometimes called targeted strikes and sometimes called assassinations. As with, uh, as with much, I think, that we've seen since September 11th, the language in which we, um, in which we use, you know, what, is it uh, torture or enhanced interrogation um, techniques? Is it a kidnapping or a rendition? There are different mm-hmm. words for all of these different actions. In other words, the drone genies out of the bottle and the Americans can no longer claim to be have a monopoly on its use. And you're right. We're even seeing terrorist groups using drones, for example, in Afghanistan and in parts of Iraq. Just a bit of an interesting sidelight, Greg. You talked about the, the 2009 underwear plot. And what people don't realize is that had he been successful, that plane would have come down probably over my hometown of London, Ontario, which is in southwestern Ontario, about two hours just east of Detroit. Because of course that's what he was targeting. So it would have it, it was a, an Amsterdam to Detroit flight, but chances are very good it would have come down over Canada because that's where the flight path was. Last question and a very unfair one to ask you, Gregory. Uh, is there anything to look forward to in Yemen? Is there any outcome, any any immediate future that does not strike you as completely dire? Yeah, it's all, it's difficult to talk about Yemen because you you always end on such a pessimistic note. Um, I think at the moment, Yemen has what I would call a Humpty Dumpty problem. 
That is, the country is broken and no one is really capable of putting the country back together again. So we we still talk about one Yemen and we talk about the problem in Yemen, the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. And to a degree, that's true. But when you really get down to on the ground realities, what you see is that it's not there's not just one Yemen that exists anymore. There's about seven different Yemens. So there's a Houthi controlled territory up in the north. There's a strip along the Red Sea coast, which is sort of contested. There's a battlefield in Taz, which is contested by the Houthis, as well as a number of different militia groups. There's in the south, um, the internationally recognized president has now lost the capital of Sana'a, which is under control of the Houthis. He's also lost his uh, replacement capital of Aden, which is now under the control of a southern secessionist movement. There are different parts of the country that have uh, basically act as as semi-autonomous and semi-independent city-states. And so you have all these different if you, I tend to think of Yemen like a glacier that is sort of broken apart and the gr- glacier is fragmenting and all these little pieces are slowly drifting apart from one another. And that, that's sort of what's happening in Yemen in that what's taking place in the Houthi-controlled territories on the north or near the border with Saudi Arabia is completely different from what's happening in the far east of the country in a place like Al-Mahra, which has Saudi mm-hmm. troops involved and is on the border with Oman. And Oman is paying tribesmen to sort of, you know, combat the Saudis in, in eastern Yemen. And it's just really difficult to see any sort of a peace process, any sort of a negotiation that will bring this country back together again. The Houthis are in a position where they're basically acting as a nation state. They're appointing ambassadors. They've appointed one to Iran. They've now appointed one to Bashar al-Assad, Syria. They're receiving ambassadors. They're changing how government works in the in the north. There's basically two economies. There's two central banks in the country. This is breaking apart, and that's going to have, I think, very serious repercussions for Western national security, for Canada's security, for the United States, for Europe, because what we tend to see is that when these countries break apart in these fissures, in these cracks, a lot of really nasty groups start to develop. And these groups, and especially in a place like Yemen, where we've had six years of war, these groups, you have a lot of young men who are armed, who don't have a lot of things to do. And I think Al-Qaeda is pretty weak in Yemen right now. But Al-Qaeda could easily rebound as some of these armed men sort of drift toward it. Yemen, of course, is on um, shipping lanes in the Red Sea coast. And we have the humanitarian um, disaster that is Yemen. And if the country continues to fall apart, that'll only mean more and more people who are in need of significant influxes of humanitarian aid from the West, or else we just sort of sit back and watch all of these people um, die of uh, preventable deaths. I ask you not to be so dire, <laughs> I, but I I understand that's a tough one. You, I'm, I'm also glad you brought up the the Al Qaeda. Of course, the Al Qaeda, the Arabian Peninsula, or AQAP. You know, in the, in the 2000s, was actually a very significant group in the area. And if memory serves me correct, there's also an Islamic State affiliate in the eastern part of Yemen. I don't hear a lot about them these days, but Gregory, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. You did not disappoint me uh, when I chose to reach out to you. You still remain, as far as I'm concerned, the guy, as I said, to go to on Yemen. You're you're knowledge of the country is absolutely encyclopedic. Uh, it does reflect the amount of time that you've spent studying it. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, Phil, it was a, it was a real pleasure. Thanks so much. 
So that was my conversation with Gregory Johnson. Uh, what do you think? Uh, can you find Yemen on a map? Do you read it very much? What are your sources telling you about that country? Is there a way forward? You can reach me uh, on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com, or on Twitter at borealisaves. You'll also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you want to subscribe to the, all the content, please go to my website, borealisthreatrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. Provide your email address. You'll get a free daily digest of all the material, blogs, podcasts, etc., free of charge to your inbox every morning. Love to hear what you thought of this podcast and others, perhaps ideas for future ones. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe. Thank you.